the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every week live, Wednesdays, 9 to 10, 10 to 11 Eastern Time, and we archive the show at the end of the day, so you can... Uh, listen to the show any time. I have two guests this morning. My first guest is uh, John Elder Robeson. John is the New York Times, a New York Times best-selling author. His new book is Raising Cubby, A Father and Son's Adventures with Asperger's, Trains, Tractors, and High Explosives. Now, his first book, which was a New York Times bestseller called Look Me in the Eye, shared... Um, John shared what it was like to grow up knowing he was different, but not actually knowing why. Uh, he is back again, and he's here on the show today to talk about his new book, which sheds light on what it was like to raise his son, Cubby, who, a.k.a. Jack, uh, equally as eccentric as his father. Uh, Robeson is a member of the Interagency Autism Coordinating Committee of the United States Department of Health and Human Services and lectures extensively on autism and neurological differences. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, John. Thank you for inviting me to join you today. Great to have you. So Raising Chubby, a uh, father and son. Cubby, adventure. not Chubby, Cubby. Cubby, Cubby. Raising yes. Cubby. Yeah, Cubby, sorry. Yes, his mom was Little Bear and he is the Bear Cub. Okay, he's so the Bear Cubby. Cub, good. Uh, I guess your book is obviously it's a father-son memoir. It's very inspirational. What, what do you want to? What's the takeaway from this book? Obviously, we're talking about Asperger's uh, syndrome here, which a lot of people aren't aware of, don't know what it is, don't know the spectrum of Asperger's. You know, autism gets a lot of play in the press. But uh, so we have, I guess, I'm opening with two questions. Um, what's the takeaway from your book? And then we have to describe what or explain what Asperger's is. Well, I think the first part of the book is really a celebration of a father and son, you know, doing crazy and fun stuff together. And I think the takeaway from that is whether you have a kid that doesn't have any issues or you have a kid that has all sorts of challenges, every child has the same hopes and dreams. They all want to fly a helicopter. They all want to drive a train. You know, they all want to do fun stuff. And that's the first part of the book. And the second part of the book talks about how my son got an interest in chemistry and explosives, and it led to his getting in trouble with the law when a prosecutor misinterpreted his scientific curiosity. And that shows how people who are different always have to be mindful of how society can misinterpret their innocent actions, and, and we are vulnerable for that reason. People who are different. Okay, so how is... How is Cubby different? How are you different? Uh, this kind of brings us uh, back to me. Cubby and I both have uh, autism. We have what's called Asperger's syndrome. People with Asperger's have difficulty um, reading the unspoken cues from other people, even though our spoken language skills are very good. So I can hear you say, that's great. And I understand what that's great means. But when you're looking at me, I can't tell if you're smiling sarcastically because you're angry or you're smiling because you think it's great and you want to praise me or you're laughing because what you think I did is ridiculous. And so the meaning of those words are very different and, and people like us can't figure that out. And that's a, a very disabling thing socially. How did you realize you had or when did you realize you had Asperger's? Asperger's wasn't recognized by the mental health profession in the United States until the mid-1990s. And, and at that time, I was 40 years old. So I had uh, grown to adulthood um, basically being a social failure 
but I was successful in my business restoring cars just because I was, you know, I was skilled at it. Um, but I was socially an outcast and a failure. And, and the knowledge of why I was different and how I might change myself transformed my life. And that's what set me on the course to writing, to share that story. So I guess one of the things is, you know, the emotional stuff that goes along with Asperger's, the difficulties that you have, and you describe Asperger's as about being different, um, not necessarily disabled, but just it's about difference. Uh, and you can be one who, uh, do I use the word suffers or, or who has the condition, is, could, can be brilliant at the same time. It, it's emotional rather than intellectual. Well, it's both things, you know. I mean, sometimes people get uh, angry when a commentator says, John suffers from Asperger's. Well, the fact is, most of the time, my difference makes me special, and my difference has allowed me to be successful the way I am, you know, seeing into cars and music and the other things I've done. But at the same time, I have to admit that I have suffered, you know. I've been alone, and I've been lonely, and I I have hurt very badly because of my social failures. So Asperger's is a gift and a disability at the same time for me and probably for everyone else on the spectrum. John, talk to us about the failures, like in the beginning. Like the, so give us examples of, like, say, when, because you're saying that it wasn't until the 90s that we talked about Asperger's, that, that was actually Asperger's was recognized as a, as a, uh, a uh, condition. And so before that, you had 40 or 41 years of kind of, I'll say, suffering. Right, and, and so, so when I was a child, that was the time I was really most disabled because as a child, I didn't have any life experience to allow me to judge was the person happy or sad. And I would say and do the wrong things. People would get angry with me. They would say I was putting them on. I was tricking them. I was a liar. I was evasive. Um, and, and it was a very painful time because it was like everything I said was wrong. As I got older and I began to develop skills like working on cars, people could see that I could fix the car. And even if I said weird things or I made inappropriate comments or whatever, I still could do my job. And so I emerged from disability as an adult by being successful at work, even though I was unsuccessful socially. And I was always lonely, but I, you know, I had a job. And, and, and that's an example, I guess, of, of how it disables you, but also how, you know, one, you make your way in the world. And, and many, many people with Asperger's did the same as me. Can you give us an example of perhaps the most difficult situation that you remember? Because, you know, as a child that really, up, you know, perhaps uh, was one of the most trying situations that you were in because you with people you know there were so many failures i mean there were just just thousands and thousands of them i I can remember you know sitting on the the playground when i was four years old and and thinking that i wanted to play with the little girl little boy next to me and and i would go over and i would show them how to play with a truck the right way because i believed i knew the right way to play with a truck and they were playing with it wrong and i thought well they would admire me when I showed them how to do that, and they said, you know, give me that truck back, and they would, you know, whack me with it, and and I'd, you know, start crying or run away, and and it's, like, funny to describe those things today, because it sounds like, you know, two kids having a tussle in the playground, but if you're that kid, and you're the one who runs away crying, and every time you try and make friends with another kid, you end up running away crying, that's a hard, hard way to live. So it's not like there was, like, one massive failure. It's like there weren't very many successes. And that's that's the loneliness of it. It's a million small things. It's not a single big thing. How did your family play into it, your mother, your father, your siblings, if you I, have siblings? I, you know, they could see that I didn't have friends. I mean, they, they could. it was plain to see there'd be... In our apartment complex, there'd be a dozen kids playing in a pack in the middle, and there was me standing at the edge. And and it was painful, I'm sure, for my mother to watch, but she didn't know what to say or do. And, of course, I didn't know either. So what about now? Obviously, you sit on the committee for the Centers for Disease Control um, uh, for Asperger's and autism. So what? how far have we come? What are we doing now? Well, that's, so that that's the triumph. In, in raising Cubby, that's one of the triumphs of that book. When, you, when I raised my son, and you'll see this in the story, um, I saw him as a little boy 
having the same kind of failures. I saw him like sit down with other kids in daycare and, and he, he didn't succeed in connecting with them. And I would pick him up and I would say, Cubby, if you do this instead of that, that little boy will want to play with you. If you say, hey, that's a nice truck, instead of taking it away from him, he'll smile and want to be your friend instead of grab his truck back and run away. And, you know, and that kind of stuff, like I said, it sounds simple, and that's what social success is. It's a, it's a million tiny things. And, and my son had friends, and he had success. He did so much better than me, and that is thanks to our knowledge. That is such a, that is such a powerful thing. Well, if your son has the same condition as you, is it hereditary? Is autism, do we know that? Yes, um, yes. We believe that uh, especially conditions uh, like Asperger's, like with me, with me and my son, my father had many of these same traits, and if he were alive today, uh, I expect he'd be diagnosed with, with Asperger's too, but my dad died actually before, you know, before Asperger's was really in the vernacular, you know. Um, yes, it is it's absolutely a, a strong hereditary component to it. John, you describe a spectrum, though. It's not simply you have Asperger's and it's kind of a static diet. Well, that's right. The autism spectrum includes people with all kinds of communication disorders. There are some people with autism who can't talk or have trouble talking, and there are also people with autism. Some people with autism are blessed with good cognitive skills, like my son and I. There are other people with autism who have moderate or even pretty profound intellectual challenges. So autism truly is a, is a universe. There are people who are very challenged and very disabled. There are people who are very exceptional and very gifted, and there are many of us in between. So you're the one in between. You are you and, and your son are the ones who are in between. So let's get back to the book then. Let's describe, you know, um, because Raising Cubby, uh, what were the challenges to you in raising Cubby? Because they, as you say, a, I mean, this is a different generation, a different set of challenges, even though it's the same diagnosis of Asperger's or autism. You know, one of the, the points that I I really make in that book is that uh, while there are challenges, and while I I showed Cubby, I gave him my best advice about how to succeed based on my own experience as a person with Asperger's. So I advised him the best I could, but one of the real strong threads in my book is talking about all the fun stuff we did, you know, how I took him to the train yard and got him to learn how to drive a train and how we went to the Navy yard and got to see Coast Guard cutters and Navy frigates. And Because truly, that's the kind of joyous celebration that, you know, any father and son would want to share. It's all too easy to get bogged down in disability and things we can't do, and, and we lose sight of the celebration of life and the ways we're unique and special and the fun things we can do, and that is so much of the focus of, my, of all my books, Raising Cubby in particular. John, do you think because you and he have both have the same condition, you and Cubby, that it makes it easier for you as a parent because you really understand where he's coming from and who he is, uh, perhaps easier than for a parent who doesn't have or Asperger's? I think the awareness of, um, of Asperger's today um, makes things easier for us. I think my son has chances to be accepted and be successful in ways that weren't available to me. Um, at the same time, my own weakness in reading uh, unspoken signals from other people can make me oblivious to say warning signs when my son might be doing something wrong or about to get into trouble. I, I'm still prone to missing that because that's one of the ways I'm still disabled, even though overall I'm a pretty functional, you know, successful, independent person. Yeah, well, you're more than pretty functional. You're very successful. You're a New York Times best-selling author. So you're kind of way over on the spectrum in terms of success, I would say. You're not just getting along or um, you've really had some superior, I don't know which, superior achievements. I mean, you, as I said, I mean, right, you're as an author. Um, but your son really suffered 
he had got himself into a pretty dangerous, or I don't know that I, or a dangerous situation in the sense that uh, he almost, he, well, you, you can tell us about it, but uh, you describe a publicity-hungry prosecutor uh, that yeah. went after Cubby. What happened? Well, my son uh, became very interested in chemistry, and he got interested in explosives, and he began um, talking about explosives in online forums, and he began, um, you know, mixing up uh, household chemicals and making explosives, and and he would uh, film his explosions, and he would discuss them. You know, he would discuss how fast the shockwave moved or how fast the compound burned or how much energy was released. And, you know, and it was all like scientific talk, but a local prosecutor somehow tried to twist that into my son being some kind of bomb-making terrorist, even though my son had no connection ever in his life to terror or bombs or fights or, you know, violence or anything of the sort. Um, and, and it shows you the way in which, um, you know, people can totally misconstrue your innocent actions and, and twist them to conform to their own totally wrong ideas. And, and you can be hurt very badly by that if a person like that's in a position of power. So what happened? You intervened? Or well, what happened in? was they, um, you know, they, they charged my son with um, four counts of malicious explosion, which is a felony in Massachusetts on a par with armed robbery or attempted murder. And, and the idea that my, son who was just a, was a gentle sweet kid never been in a fight or anything would be charged with the same crime that they would charge a mob boss who blew up an associate's cadillac or a, an outlaw biker who threw a hand grenade through somebody's window the idea that they would put my son in with people like that was just just outrageous and crazy it's a i guess it's that's very sobering i guess for any parent so I guess it, it absolutely means, is. Yeah. It is every parent's worst nightmare that your kid will do something a little different, and and somebody like a prosecutor will see a chance to get their name and lights and advance their career by ruining your family, because that's the really the essence of what happened here. You know, we talk a lot about how you know criminals get away or whatever, and we talk about you know whether we sentence people to too much time in jail. What you never hear about is the um, the somewhat less common but still very real situations where innocent families are, are hurt very badly or even ruined by the improper actions of misguided officials in the legal system. So you're an expert personally and professionally on Asperger's and autism. What do you suggest to parents so that they don't end up or hopefully don't end up, say, in the same kind of situation that Cubby ended up in, although he had you obviously there to... Uh, to, to be to be there for him and to to get him out of this situation. I, I think that we have to be very we have to be very sensitive to the ways in which society can see what we do and and we have to look beyond our own our own motives. We have to sort of ask ourselves, you know, well, could somebody else interpret what I'm doing differently? And 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 do I need to protect myself against the consequences of that? And, and I think that my own Asperger's prevented me from fully understanding the degree to which uh, somebody like that prosecutor could twist the reality of what my son was doing. I, uh, frankly, it was totally shocking to me that, um, that somebody could see my son as the kind of, you know, horrible, uh, evil criminal that, that she imagined him to be. How does your wife, or, or how does Cubby's mother fit into this? Well, I think she was just as horrified as me. And, and in fact, Cubby's mom, you know, who I call Little Bear, um, we're not married to each other anymore, but we're still very close. And, and, and I think we were both, uh, you know, shocked and horrified by that. And then neither of us had any idea that, um, that, that somebody would see our son in that way. What would you suggest for parents? Because, you know, from a practical, I mean, besides, you know, read your book, I think by reading your book, obviously, and understanding this memoir about you and your well, son. I, is I think that I talk about the need to open a dialogue, you know, to, uh, to talk about uh, possibly some accountability for public officials who embark on these, these kinds of chases. 
Um, and I think that uh, parents, you know, the, those who follow me, we need to be more aware and more vigilant about what our kids do. You know, my son ended up okay, but we read all the time about um, teenagers who get into trouble with uh, with all sorts of stuff through the internet, whether it's explosives or it's um, or it's uh, pornography or it's uh, it's inadvertently. Um, threatening people, you know, saying like, oh, I wish you were dead, you know, and they type that over the Internet, and all of a sudden it becomes a death threat for the FBI and not just conversation on the recess ground at school. You know, we we read about how how these kinds of actions in the Internet age often have consequences dramatically out of proportion to what was ever, you know, thought or intended. And we need to be vigilant about that as parents. Well, as you say, and given the Internet and the power of the Internet to exacerbate this problem, early diagnosis, it would seem to me, is important. I think early diagnosis is important, but I think awareness of the um, of the fact that we are much more at risk in this Internet-connected world where uh, everything, you know, follows us forever. And, um, and frankly, I think so many things are criminalized or blown out of proportion. I mean, you know, you... You can surely remember that um, that when we, you, you, when you and I were children, kids would say things like that all the time. They would say, you know, well, you better you better bring me my you know my my toy. You better bring me my book tomorrow, or you're dead. You know, and and nobody interpreted that as a as a death threat in 1965 or 75 or 85, but in 2013, people call the police about that stuff at schools, and um, you know, and that, to me, I mean, that's a very troubling commentary on our society when when so much behavior on the part of children is criminalized. And, and we have to be so vigilant. And I think a lot of that is because the Internet takes away the social context. You know, when you see the words typed on a computer screen, it seems like a stark threat. When you heard it from two laughing teenagers on a playground, no one in his right mind would feel menaced by that. But the Internet casts it in a different light. Yeah, uh, That's a good point. I, I, I hadn't actually, I hadn't thought about that, but I think you're right. The Internet does do that, and, it's pretty, and we act out of, also I think there's the fear factor. I mean, you talk about the differences between the 60s and 70s and 80s and now with the Internet. I mean, there's that whole, you know, we're the whole the terrorists, the fear, uh, that, that whole, you know, the whole climate of fear we live in today is really, you know, it's almost a, it's an invention of the internet. Because when we, when we look back, for example, um, nobody, nobody today would let his child hitchhike home from school. Parents don't want their kids to walk home from school. Every day, you know, a hundred cars are lined up at schools for parents to pick their kids up because they're scared to have them ride the bus. And, and when I was a little boy, we all walked home in packs. We hitchhiked everywhere. The truth is, the chances that you're going to be abducted or murdered are less today than they were in the 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s, or 30s. There's less real risk of violence to children today. But we act as if there's this incredible elevated threat level, and it simply isn't real, but the Internet spreads the bad news so fast that everyone lives in a climate of fear. And you it's know, a harmful thing for our society, frankly. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I, the statistic you're saying, it's actually we have less abductions now than we did 20, 25 years ago is an interesting statistic because we are much more fearful. And a lot of our fears is just based on all that stuff on the net. You're right. Uh, we have a you couple know, that, That's why it's so important, you know, in my, in my books and all my books, in Raising Cubby, Look Me in the Eye and Be Different, to celebrate difference and celebrate fun and celebrate the fact that, that even if we have this climate of fear, kids want to have fun, and they want to have fun now, and they've wanted to have fun forever. That's not going to change. And that's really what I celebrate in my stories. So celebrate the differences. Don't fear the differences. I mean, that's the message. Uh, and and take joy in the differences and the diversity and all, you know, what we have to offer. But in, instead of being fearful of what we don't know. But then you have to learn to connect, right? We have to be able to connect and not just on the Internet, but one-to-one, face-to-face. 
That's right. You need to develop skills. And in fact, my, my book, uh, Be Different, is entirely focused on building the skills to be successful in life, both because of our differences and in spite of our differences. That, that book, I, I think, has spoken powerfully to thousands and thousands of young people about that very message. And, and Raising Cubby really continues that message for young people and parents. And if we want to know more about the book as well as about you, John Robeson, we can go to johnrobeson.com on the net. Yep, and I'm, and I'm John Elder Robeson on Facebook, and I'm John Robeson on Twitter also. And, and you can people can just Google either Raising Cubby or John Elder Robeson, and you'll find me right away online. Great. Great having you on the show this morning. Thanks so much, John. Thank you for having me with you. And good luck with the book, John Elder Robeson, Raising Cubby. Coming up next is Laura Watson, Wanting Sex Again. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. You are listening to the Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone. Joining me this morning is certified sex therapist Lori J. Watson. Her new book is Wanting Sex Again, How to Rediscover Your Desire and Heal a Sexless Marriage. If you feel like sex just isn't worth the effort, you're not alone. People will be glad. Listeners will be glad to hear that. Uh, 40 million American women are frustrated by their lack of sexual pa- passion, and uh, Laura J. Watson uses six erotic tasks and addresses the sexual problems that can develop with life changes, from marriage to motherhood to menopause. And she writes the Married and Still Doing It blog online for Psychology Today and is the clinical director of the Awakening Center for Intimacy and Sexuality. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Lori. Thank you, Catherine. I'm glad to be here. Well, you talk about, you know, we can get back to steaming up the windows again and getting back our sexual mojo, I guess you're talking about, even after we have received those AARP cards. Right. Uh, <laughs> and that's what, you know, it's your book is kind of a how-to book, Wanting Sex Again, How to Rediscover Your Desire and Heal a Sexless Marriage. My first question, though, is what if you've never had a great sex life to begin with, whether unmarried, married, monogamous, long-term relationship, whatever your relationship is or has been? That's a good question. I see passion as this life force. And so when somebody is muted passionately and erotically, there are often something of, there, there are issues that are obscuring that. And so basically therapy addresses what the problems might be. Are they childhood messages, things that we got from our culture saying, especially for women, right, you know, don't be a girl who wants it. If you are, you're a bad girl. Um, messages from our childhood would include don't have sex or sex is um, a bad thing or all boys, you know, just want it or women will 
trade sex for money. There's all kinds of craziness out there that people shut down inside. I mean, obviously, the deeper problems would be trauma, not just sexual trauma in families of origin, but um, many structures create a trauma in a child and for a child that block their later exuberant expression uh, of their personality and of their sexuality. So if you've never had that drive, I don't think that it's it's necessarily something that can't be solved. I think it might take deeper work. And, and of course, there's always the need to rule out physiological issues. So we're actually in the book you're talking about, as, and I, I want to make sure I get, when I introduced you, I said certified sex therapist, so people yes. know that you are the expert. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm a licensed marriage family therapist and a licensed professional counselor. So I have to make these assumptions. You've had all kinds of experiences with all different populations, different people, and we're talking about, I guess, gay and straight couples as well? Yes, absolutely. All right, so we're going to eliminate the people who perhaps have had difficulties with sex when they okay. were younger, okay. and, right? And and we acknowledge the fact that there are those who never were able to have sure. a passionate sexual relationship. Sure. But, what, but for those of us who have... Um, but we start going, maybe we will focus on women, like we go through these life changes and they don't necessarily, and what happens is somehow going through these life changes as we discuss, whether it's marriage, menopause, um, what else, we motherhood, kind of serves to, what, dissipate our passion for sex with our partners? I, I certainly think that there are challenges in different life stages. When we first marry, you talked about the six erotic tasks, and, and there are certain things that we need to master, if you will, when we are early in relationship. We need to connect and, and get through who initiates, what we're going to do, and how we communicate that, what language we use. Then as we become parents... It's very important that um, there's conflicts that get resolved when two become three. When a family goes from just a couple to having children, it's a transitional stage. And, and many couples say, oh, you know, I'm just so tired. I can't possibly have sex. I've worn out by the children and by working to support the family. But I see that often in therapy, these couples have had cracks in their relational structure that started much earlier and they're exacerbated by the stress of having children. What are some and, of those cracks? Like you, you have a couple in therapy, and you see some cracks. It's not just because they had a, had a baby. There's, there was that's stuff. Right. Happened, yeah. That's right. There, there is an essential struggle between couples. We, we both need something similar. We need autonomy, and we need closeness in life. And so, but when we get connected in deep relationship, those two needs often split between. Um, the coupleship. So one person corners the market on one end of the continuum and the other on the opposite end. We, we All right, find give us an somebody. example. For, okay, so have... for instance, uh, maybe one person says, you know, I need, I want you to talk to me. I want you to tell me your feelings. I want more time with you. I want to be close to you. And the other person says, gosh, you know, that feels smothering to me. I need time to pursue my career. I really... There's so many things and hobbies that I like to do on my own. I like to come home and read the paper or just play on my computer for a while. I need space and distance. The pursuer says, you're starving me. I need more from you. And the distancer says, you know what? No matter what I give you, it's not enough anyway. And oftentimes, if in a heterosexual relationship, that can be gender reverse. The man most typically is the distancer. He pursues intensity in life outside of the relationship, but he wants intensity and connection inside the bedroom. And she, in turn, to balance this structure, is really uninterested in bed. It's and this, this is the struggle that we all have on some varying degree, and, and it's why sexlessness begins so early in the relationship, because this is the, how we balance closeness and connection is played out on many fields, and sex is a very fragile field that it gets played out on and is often subject to early difficulty, well before the children come into the picture, Catherine. Laurie, how would you compare that uh, to same-sex couples? Does it work the same for, like, two men and and two women, or is it different? Well, it, it is a little different. I, I think that what gay men tell me is oftentimes they're not going to choose sex 
as the place to play out this problem. So because they both are funded physiologically with so much testosterone, um, they have often desire carries the day for them, but they certainly recognize the way they play this struggle out in other areas, maybe time, together, closeness, expression of feelings. Lesbian women often have more of an issue with this. They they struggle with closeness and distance, and it's often played out in the sexual field because both of them have lower levels of testosterone, so they don't have an overriding biological urge. And I think many of us are socialized as women, lesbian or straight, to believe that it's time to have sex when we feel it, when we feel horny or desire. That's when it's time to have sex. But that is not how women traditionally start a sexual experience. Women start it in their minds, not in their bodies. Desire is held in our imagination and in our fantasies. And so two women that are connected um, may be waiting for the mood to strike. And because both of them have low testosterone, or at least significantly lower than two men might have, um, they haven't figured out how to initiate sexually based on their imagination and fantasies. Well, it's interesting. To, I'm so glad that I asked you that question because I've always thought that that was probably the case, but to hear you, the expert, mm-hmm. kind of validating that, um, right. you know, that kind of that testosterone-estrogen thing. You know, yeah. heterosexual couples are in the middle, and then you have gay men on one side and, and lesbians mm-hmm. on the other side. So it creates different kinds of issues. It does. Yeah. We, let's, we don't live in a very, I don't think, passionate society. I mean, we... We do a lot of things that go against being a very, very passionate people. Uh, we eat too much. We drink too much. We are child. We are a child-centered society. So oh, even yeah. if somebody's been doing pretty well in terms of their sexual relationship, when a couple when they get have a baby, we become so child-centered that they the relationship itself, not even just sex, seems to really take a second or third place to to the child. Yes, I I so agree. And I have something practical to say at the end of this about that. But when two people have a children, have have a child, and, you know, the mother of the child, the primary first, now it can be two women, but the primary first, if she bears the child or if she's the caretaker or if it's in a heterosexual couple, the mother, um, you know, her, her job is to kind of fall in love with the child form a coupleship with the baby and attach and give a basis of security. The other person's job, whether it be um, the other partner or the father, his job is at some point to have arms around the couple of the baby mommy and protect, but he must insert himself or she must insert herself if, if it's a lesbian couple into that coupleship and reassert the priority of the marriage. And many people fail to do that because the marriage is, is or the, the relationship is what is primary and what will ultimately support the good of the child. If the parents fall apart, you know, if the bow breaks, right, the cradle will fall. And so no matter how you feather that nest and how careful you are about attending to the children, without the marriage or the relationship staying together, the children are in jeopardy. That is well said. And you know, Lori, I'm thinking about uh, kind of the, and not that I'm not for family values in a good way, all families, whoever those, the make, whatever the makeup of the family is, yes. but this kind of family values, family values, and there really is no emphasis, like you just said, on the couple, because the whole family will fall apart unless you... And also the couple as a, a sexual, passionate couple who can, you know, function on themselves as a couple and then as a whole family. Mm-hmm. Am I being clear? Do you know what? I, I think you are. And primarily, I mean, this this can be done very practically. I like to say something. Couples absolutely need to get out alone without the children once a week. Mommies, daddies, or mommies and others, right, they need autonomous time every weekend. I say four hours for the mother, four hours for the other. And then four hours at least together. That's without the children because this gives us something to replenish us so that we can give back to each other and give to the child. And practically, I love what you said, we eat too much, we drink too much. What I say is 
play first, party second. So when you have a date night, have arrange if you can somebody to come and take the children out for pizza, have appetizers and wine at home, make love first, and then go out and enjoy that sense of closeness all night long. Because what happens is couples say, okay, the romantic setup is the babysitter is going to come, we're going to rush out the door, and we're going to eat too much, drink too much, come home, be too tired, and somebody is going to be angry in the morning. Good advice. It's such a simple thing to do, and obviously, once you get the babysitter and the kids out of the house, the house is yours. Exactly. Yeah. That's And and And, and the other thing, I think, is, you know, schedule and prioritize time and money for to get out of the house and go to a hotel. You know, it's much cheaper than therapy to go to a hotel once a month, and you don't have to stay there all night. You can go there together, have a luxurious six hours, um, you know, in a different space. I think mothers have this psychological difficulty separating herself from her work, which is her home. You know, the demands of the children, the demands of the household, the, the potential of a child walking in or crying out. She just can't mentally get separate enough very easily. So doing that with physical boundaries of going to a hotel or going away is so helpful to kind of regenerate the sex life. So change the setting. That's another Change right? the setting. Just, yes. Completely. Just change the setting. Yeah. Now, what about specifically, let's talk about, okay, we're talking about menopause. I mean, we've talked about motherhood. Now, what about menopause? Because, you know, I talk to baby boomers all the time. I'm a baby boomer. Menopause is a big issue with women. They go through menopause, estrogen levels that, you know, plummet. Right. And yet they've got another. What? Lowers as well. Testosterone is even lower. Yeah. Menopause. But somehow it seems that the estrogen, at least to the people that I or colleagues that I talk to and patients and friends, it's always, it seems the estrogen seems to be the problem. I mean, men seem to retain enough of their testosterone uh, mm-hmm. and women, for some reason, you know, this, uh, their passion or their, and women who have had fairly good sexual relationships right. with their partners really kind of go just down the tube. So right. what do you do for well, menopause? Let me say a little bit about the hormones. We need, as women, a stew, a correct stew of hormones. So we need estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone in a balance. Um, estrogen, the loss of estrogen, one major problem is that our, our genital tissue becomes thinner and drier. So intercourse and sexual activity can become painful. Um, the other thing is really testosterone is even lower in a woman in menopause. And testosterone is the internal hormone that governs biological desire. So I want to say these statistics. A a man's normal range of testosterone is about 1,000 nanograms per deciliter in the blood down to 300. Now, 1,000 is what parents of young girls are afraid of everywhere. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And 300, Catherine, these men are my patients. They come in and they tell me, you know what, Lori, I don't have morning erections anymore. Viagra doesn't help me enough. I can't, even with that, I'm unsuccessful in having an erection. I don't think about sex, but maybe once a week. And if I have a fight with my wife, I don't want it. That's at 300. Now, the normal range for females is 70 to 2. That's a huge difference. 70 happens for a woman when she's 18. You know, we've all heard that women peak when they're 35, but women peak emotionally at 35. They they come into their own. They can ask for what they want in bed. They can demand what they need in life at 35, but physiologically, her highest level of hormones is when she's 18, just like for men. And... By the time she's 40, her testosterone is in half, and by the time she's in menopause, it can be non-detectable. That's a grim picture, Lori. Yeah. It, well, I, what I think is exciting is that I, I, this is why I don't believe women really ever turn on um, because of being prompted in their bodies. We, we say, but I, you know, when I was young, I did, and I felt it, and I felt all these urges. And I said, right, and let me tell you what you did when you were young as a woman. You woke up in the morning and you thought about your date and you thought, oh, I'm so excited about this and you shaved your legs and you put on something pretty underneath 
and at noon you were fantasizing about, oh, I'm going to run out and go get a new sweater to wear tonight. By midday, by mid-afternoon, you're bored at work or at school and fantasizing about where you're going to go. You set aside six hours for, you know, from six o'clock till whenever. You have cocktails, you flirt, you fantasize, you have all this connection and erotic talk. By the time they get to the moment of touching, the woman is already lubricated. But that's because she's used her mind for about eight hours to fantasize. And, and she can do that any day of the week right now. If also, women... don't you, but don't you think also at that particular time in your life, 18 to 25 or whatever, that it's all about you anyway? You don't have a lot of the other stuff getting in the way of your erotic fantasies or how you That's shave right. your legs or buy the That's sweater. Right. You know, by the time you're 50, you have a lot of other things on your plate, on your mind, and it gets in the way of these erotic mm-hmm. fantasies and yes, feelings. Yes. That's true, and and I would say that more than half of all women, the desire and the arousal phase in the natural sexual cycle is reversed. And what this means is her partner comes home and says, do you want to have sex? And she says, first of all, that's a bad question because she's going to answer, "Mm, no. But if he says or she says, I want you, let's make love, the odds are that that other woman is going to start at zero because she has not thought about it. She is starting at zero level of arousal. But after quite a bit of touching and making love and foreplay, um, she will get aroused. And at that point, that is when her willingness turns to wanting. That's when she says, you know, I'm glad we're doing this. I really do want this. She, she comes to the bed willing. Men come to the bed craving and so, so what happens in midlife or in, actually, almost as soon as we get connected in long-term relationship, women report this, that in long-term relationship, her desire kicks in after she gets aroused. So she, she has to give herself a chance to get aroused, and her partner has to give her body a chance to warm up. And this is why foreplay takes so long for women. First of all, they don't have testosterone. Testosterone gives men instant arousal. And it, and for women, we don't have enough, so we need this long extended time. That's physiological. Has nothing to do with her being attracted to her partner or thinking he or she is attractive. It has to do with how her body works. So there has to be a real, and I I know we talk about this as therapists, and, but there really does have to be an ability to communicate with your partner. I mean, because particularly if you are in the stage of menopause, and as you say, even men's testosterone levels have plummeted, and yes. they have, yeah, erectile dysfunction, less erections, and I mean, you, it's really important to be able to talk to each other, I guess, on an ongoing basis, otherwise. Oh, and I think so, and talking gives us the ability to be flexible, because as we age and the changes happen... We can misinterpret, right? A woman can say, gosh, you know, he lost his erection. He must not be finding me attractive anymore. And a man can say, you know, she's not lubricated anymore. When I touch her, she must not find me sexy anymore or want me anymore. And that that's a huge miscommunication that is really based on normal physiological changes and is very workable. But um, I think the other thing is space gets realigned in menopause and retirement, Right. You know, as we reach menopause, often we're starting to think about at least retirement. Maybe our partner might be thinking about it too. And the way we've connected and the balance that we've, ha- we've had over space changes. For instance, maybe he retires and she says, you know, he's always underfoot. And I no longer have my personal space. And so sexually she starts to distance more because she says, I, I-, I don't have enough uh, time for me. And frankly, I don't want to make his lunch every day. You know, I I have my own agenda. <laughs> you know, yeah, I want to, and that that's a very common scenario, unfortunately. But what mm-hmm. what do you, you know? We only have a couple minutes. Well, we have a couple minutes, a few minutes left, actually. And I want to know what do you think about why don't these issues? Why don't we 
kind of out there every day. We have the, you know how we talk about like when young girls get married and run in, and the, the fantasy is you go off with your prince and live happily ever after? Right. Why don't we talk about the realities of, of, of menopause and of, we can even call it male menopause or that sort of second half of your AARP life? Uh-huh. And 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 talk j- just about the kinds of things you're you're discussing because we don't do that. We, we we suddenly I have found even friends who are now they're into the grandmother. Suddenly they become they they're starting all over again. Mm-hmm. They're babysitting for the grandchildren. They're not paying attention to their partners, spouses, husbands, um, and they're just repeating the same kinds. You know they don't have time for right. their and partners. It, it's, it's, but that's usually. The carryover isn't of an old pattern between um, her and her partner. I mean, this, this the grandmother obsession is just continuing from the mother obsession and the lack of priority for the coupleship. And you know, I think sometimes by that age, the power struggle is so entrenched. Entrenched, people have hurt each other so much that they really don't know how to reconnect, how to forgive. And go forward. Um, and, you know, I, I think a forgiveness is a process. It's usually something that we need to review the hurts and heal them and get through them. It's not something, well, okay, it's a do-over, let's go on, and I'm going to feel sexual about you. That just doesn't work. At least it doesn't work for women. And it often doesn't work at that stage for men either. So what would you recommend for couples? Do they have to wait until they get into a crisis and they have to go see you? No, I think that, um, you know, marriage is kind of designed to confront us with our issues. If we listen to our partner, we will hear what the problems are, what they need from us. We'll hear it over and over and over again. The complaints, the things that drive us crazy about each other are a way to talk about how we need to change. So, for instance... You know, like you said, we get married, we think we've married the prince, we get into the power struggle, we really believe we've married the frog. You know, I've just married a selfish person. That is the hallmark of of a person in the midst of the power struggle. Everybody at some point believes, I've married a selfish person. And I think the good news I will say is that I think we must, to reach true love, we must go through the power struggle because it strips us of our own projections about who we're cracking our partner up to be. It gives us an opportunity to really see who they are and love that person. And to reach true love, we have to commit to loving our partner the way they receive love, not the way we prefer to give it, not the way we prefer to get it, but the way they prefer to get it. So, for instance, maybe a woman is married to a man who really feels love, as many men do, spelled with three letters, you know, S-E-X. Now, giving him sex doesn't mean just, okay, I'm going to give it to you. I'll lie there and, you know, think of England. But it means, it means developing the erotic self. And isn't that a lovely thing? Because the woman becomes more whole. And the man may say, you know, all she wants is me to spend time with her and talk to her. Well, this means him coping with his own anxiety about vulnerability and closeness. And he becomes a more whole person. We have to end on that, but that last uh, phrase that you use, developing the erotic self, I like that. That's what we need, as I see it, that's what we need to do. uh, We've been, Lori J. Watson, sex therapist, uh, writes the Married and Still Doing It blog in Psychology Today's online magazine. I'm going to refer to that now on an ongoing basis. Wanting Sex Again, that's her new book. It's a great book, How to Rediscover, Rediscover Your Desire and Heal a Sexless Marriage. Thanks so much for being on the show, Lori. Thank you for having me. This was fun. This was great. Thanks. You've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and it's voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a good week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel.